Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Nahum. We've been walking through the book of Nahum. We're actually going to conclude this short summer series today. So if you would open to Nahum, we're going to pick things up where we left them off last week. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3. I want you to imagine freedom. Imagine freedom. Now, I don't know what comes immediately to each of your minds. No doubt there's a variety of things. Perhaps some of you who are parents of young children, when I say imagine freedom, you, you think you love your kids. They are an amazing gift. You love them dearly. And at the same time, you feel weary of always being poked and prodded and pulled and, and woken up in the middle of the night. And, and you long for the day when they can get up and pee by themselves. You, you long for the day when you will have freedom to sleep uninterrupted. Maybe some of you who are younger, teenagers, you, you, when I say imagine freedom, you think of the day when you will get your driver's license and your mom or your dad will hand you the car keys and you will be able to, uh, to, to go out on your own independently, autonomously, with friends, and, and you'll just have a whole another level of freedom that you have never had. I say imagine freedom, and that's what comes to your mind. Perhaps some of you think about your financial reality, some of the challenges. You're, you're working hard, and you are, you're trying to make progress, paying down debt, and, and it feels like it's a struggle week to week, month to month, and and you're trying to pay down that mortgage. And when I say imagine freedom, you think of the day when all your debts are gone, when your mortgage is paid for. That's what comes to mind when I say imagine freedom. Perhaps for some of you, you you think of that, that really difficult experience that you've gone through in your life that has left you wounded. You, you are seeking to process it. You're seeking to work through to, to get to a place of freedom. And yet that, that experience, that pain, that wound continues to have its, its grip on you. And when I say imagine freedom, you, you imagine the day when, when you will walk past that. That will be history. Perhaps when I say imagine freedom, for some of you, you think of that that besetting sin, that, that thing that you are struggling with, that you are trying to overcome, and, and you're seeking Jesus and praying to Him, and you're having some success, and then you, you experience failure again, and, and you, you struggle. And so when I say imagine freedom, you, you, you think of the day when that will be in the rearview mirror where you will walk in victory and freedom. When I say imagine freedom, there's probably a lot of different things that come to your mind. This morning, as we walk through the last half or so of the book of Nahum, though it may not be immediately obvious, this is a passage about God's coming judgment upon Nineveh, a passage through which God wants to lead us to imagine freedom, the freedom that we can find in Him, true freedom, ultimate freedom, perfect freedom. The book of Nahum is an oracle of doom. It's an oracle of judgment. God gives a vision to the prophet Nahum, and he proclaims this. He shares this with the nation of Judah. It is to Judah, but it is about Nineveh, Assyria. Nahum, I said, have you been with us? Nahum is a sequel, really, to the book of Jonah. 
Jonah was a Hebrew prophet called by God, sent to the city of Nineveh to proclaim God's coming judgment. Jonah didn't want to go. He ran away, got swallowed by fish. Hopefully you know the story. Ends up going back there after God makes the fish vomit him up on the shore. He goes a second time, or he goes the second time, and he preaches. And amazingly, the people of Nineveh Nineveh, repent. They turn to Yahweh in faith, hoping that he will relent, and surely God does. And so Nineveh experiences a a great restoration, salvation from God's judgment. Well, now Nahum speaks to that same city, a a different generation. About 100 years later, the, the people, the descendants of those Ninevites who had repented and believed, the descendants of them have returned to the wicked ways of their forefathers. And so Nahum comes and he proclaims this message of God's judgment on them. Last Sunday we looked at the second part of Nahum and we saw that that we are all in a story, a story that will have one of two endings depending on the choice that we all make. We, We have the choice to resist God or to surrender to God. And if we resist God, we will experience as the Ninevites do, uh, it will lead to judgment. But if we surrender to God, if we surrender to Yahweh, we, uh, our story will end with, with freedom and peace and joy. It will end with salvation. Now this morning we're going to walk through a larger portion of the letter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, I want to do four things with you uh, as we walk through this. I want to help you see and reflect upon four things. First, the vision of judgment. Second, the reason for judgment. Third, the effect of judgment. And fourth, the fulfillment of judgment. Now, as a longer text, we're going to read it in two sections, not the whole thing at once. So I want to begin uh, first with the vision of judgment. And to that end, we're going to read in a moment verses 3 to 10. Uh, Our text will open with an evocative uh, description of a coming battle. The first eight verses, uh, we will see... In these verses, the fall of Nineveh, chariots and soldiers and armor and enemies uh, storming the city. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read verses 3 to 10. The shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. At this point in the prophecy, Nahum has in his vision this description of the fall of Nineveh. He sees it clearly, and it's recounted here in in rich language. Through this vision, he sees the demise of Nineveh, the confusion and the horror as the enemy invades. The text opens with a sight of soldiers clad in, in red, and we know that the Babylonian soldiers who would one day come and who would invade Assyria, who would invade Nineveh, they, they dressed in red. 
they were the ones to storm Nineveh. We read of uh, the, the flashing of the sun off of the metal of chariots as they, as they approached the city, of cavalry and infantry bearing spears. We read of Nineveh's troops dashing to the walls, but all for naught. The river gates are thrown open and the palace, we read, collapses. But it's not merely the Babylonians who, who come against the Assyrians. Listen to verse 7. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Decreed, decreed by God, by Yahweh. It, it's not merely the Babylonians who are coming, but God is waging war against them. Nahum employs this powerful imagery descri- describing the destruction of the city, of this once mighty city. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is drained away. This week I saw a short video. A teenage boy had a machete or a sword, and in his backyard he set up, I don't know if it was on a table, but he had a piece of firewood, a log sitting there, and a, and a fruit. I think it was a, an orange or a grapefruit sitting on the top, I couldn't tell. And his plan was he set up his camera to record him. He took this blade and he swung. Now he missed which wouldn't have been a big deal, except he had set this whole thing up right next to an above-ground swimming pool. And so he missed the grapefruit, and he hit the, the side of the pool, and the water just drained away. That's the image here. Nineveh is this pool that is draining. Then we hear a call to plunder Nineveh. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. Verse 10, she's pillaged, plundered, stripped. One Old Testament scholar writes this, the wealthiest of all the cities of the world is quickly left empty, void, and waste with all its greatness decimated. And then verse 10 concludes, reveals to us the human reaction to what is described. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. These words capture, they express the terror experienced by all those who would be there and experience this or witness this. Now, I want you to remember that Nahum receives this vision. He proclaims this message decades before this happens. Nahum proclaims this at a time when Assyria and Nineveh are at the the height of their might and their glory. When he writes this, as as the people of Judah hear this, it is is unimaginable. It is hard to even uh, grasp this. Assyria is a superpower. Nonetheless, the end of Nineveh is decreed by God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the sovereign one over all people, over all nations, over every kingdom. And so there is no doubt whatsoever that these things will yet unfold. God's purpose is to destroy this nation. Now let's turn to the second matter that we're going to look at, and that's the reason for this judgment as we read on in our text. And I'm going to read the rest of the text It's a little bit of a longer section, so I invite you, if you don't have your Bible, just to listen, but follow along if you can from verse 11 of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lair with the kill and his den with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. 
The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslave nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense. The waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies, yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles, and all her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They are all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. Work the clay. Tread the mortar. Repair the brickwork. There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and fly away. Your guards are like locusts. Your officials like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day, and when the sun appears, they fly away, and no one knows where. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest, your peoples are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? I want to ask this question. What is the reason for God's judgment that is announced on Assyria, on Nineveh? I want you to notice first what we see in verse 11. And that is Assyria, Nineveh, described uh, with the, the imagery of a lion. The imagery of a lion is played out there for a few verses. A lion, of course, is a fierce predator, king of the beast, top of the food chain. And indeed, that's how Nineveh had functioned in the ancient world, hunting, plundering, killing all those around them. Here we begin to see something of why, why God's judgment was coming, why Yahweh has announced this judgment on Assyria, on this nation. It's because of how Assyria has treated others. Lions, of course, are fierce predators, and we do not hold it against a lion for hunting and killing its prey, to feed its young, to feed the pride. Nonetheless, it is difficult to watch. Some of you have watched, I'm sure, the BBC Planet Earth video series. My family and I watched it many years ago, and I remember there was a scene where a pack, a pride of lions, actually hunted. They, they, had, they were hungry. They hadn't found food for a while, and so they did something a little unusual. They hunted and took down an elephant. And I remember seeing that footage with our boys. I don't remember how they reacted. Some of them may have run out of the room. Uh, 
it's hard to watch. You see this pride of lions tackling this elephant, biting, crawling on top of it, and taking it down and devouring it. It's hard to watch, and, and we recognize that that's part of the world like this with, with animals, but, but he, here's what one scholar says, human sensitivities recoil at the sight of such brutality among the beasts of the forest, but what is to be said when the same kind of behavior characterizes man made in the image of God? The Ninevites are described as lions. This is how they have treated people. Men and women created in the image of God. I I will spare you the horrific details of how the Assyrians treated those they conquered. There are horrifying details available. And and we can turn to those, it turns your stomach. And the reality is, not, not only did they treat others that way, but the kings of Assyria actually sought to celebrate, to memorialize, memorialize these horrifying deeds. They have stone reliefs. They carved this into stone, images of the violence, the brutality that they exercised against other people. Robertson again writes this, torture and inhumanity of the worst sort were a major characteristic of royal life. For 200 years they ravaged the various peoples of the ancient Near East just as lions prowl daily for their prey. Assyria was a brutal nation, treating the nations around them horribly. We read on, verse three, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, we read, city of blood. City of blood, that's the description of Nineveh. Full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Never without victims. These verses are describing what the Assyrians did to neighboring peoples. A charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. These are brutal images. Whereas the opening verses of our text describe their fall, that is, as Babylon invades Nineveh, here is a description of how Nineveh attacked other nations. A bit later, verse 8, Nineveh's asked this question, are you better than Thebes situated on the Nile? Thebes was the capital of Egypt. Egypt had been once a mighty empire, a formidable empire, and, and yet they had fallen. They had, in fact, fallen to the Assyrians. The Assyrians took them down, and, and yet this question is asked, are you better than them? They fell Here, verse 10, yet she was taken captive, went into exile. Her infants dashed to pieces at every street corner. It was the Assyrians that did that. Nineveh's wickedness was not limited only to violence. It's described, verse 4, as wanton lust. She pillaged and plundered the other nations. She has exploited them, taking more and more and more, decimating other nations for her own enrichment. As we read that part of Nahum, it's reminiscent, actually, of what we encounter in the book of Revelation, where John pronounces a threefold woe over Babylon, over Rome. There, John is describing Rome's oppressive economic policies and practices by which she enriched herself at the expense of everyone else. And there, John records this threefold woe, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. Well, here, Nahum pronounces a woe over Nineveh. Woe to you, the city of blood. For a second time we encounter in in this text the sobering words of the Lord, I am against you. 
I am against you. God will judge them for their wickedness, for their sin, for their violence, for their economic exploitation, for the way they have treated men and women, created an image of God for their arrogance and rejection of God, of Yahweh. They would fall because of their beastly, wicked treatment of others. So what we need to understand as we come to this text is that God's coming judgment announced in Nahum, as difficult as it is for us to see, to read, to think about, it is deserved, it is merited. The punishment fits the crime. She had slaughtered others recklessly and now she will be slaughtered. In her lust she had exploited others, plundered others, and now she as a nation will be plundered and emptied of all her wealth. We're reminded of the words in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. The topic of God's judgment, to be sure, is sobering. We don't like to think about this. We, 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 don't, we, we want to look away. We, we want to skip over books like Nahum, but we mustn't. We, what we need to see here, what we do see here, if we keep our eyes open, is that the reason that God judges Nineveh is God judges because He is just because He is holy, because He is good, and because sin must be paid for. Sin incurs a debt. God judges because He is angry at the evil and the injustice that is happening in His creation. And remember, God's anger, this is from a couple weeks ago, God's anger is not like our anger. God's anger is not God losing His temper. God's anger is His settled opposition to evil. God judges because evil and injustice are destroying His good creation. God judges because evil and injustice are destroying the lives of men and women created in His image. God is slow to anger. We read that in chapter 1. God is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble for all those who will trust in Him. And remember, for Nineveh, for the ancestors of these very people, God had once announced through Jonah a message of coming judgment, and they had repented and turned to Him, and God in His mercy and His grace and His compassion had relented. They had experienced salvation, but another generation has come, and they have rejected the repentance of their ancestors. God is slow to anger. But God will not leave the guilty unpunished. We also read earlier in Nahum. The wages of sin is death. The wickedness of the Ninevites incurs a cost. Evil incurs a penalty. God will restore His good creation. He will defeat evil. He will eliminate it. Thus, Nineveh will reap what it's has sown. Her penalty will fit her crime. In judging her, God is not unjust Nineveh is getting just what she deserves. She has persisted in her rebellion against the God of grace, and now their end is coming. Here's what we read in verses 12 and 13. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops, they are all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gate. That fruit tree illustration, picture picture fruit so ripe that you can walk up to the tree and shake it and it just falls into your mouth. Picture Assyria's troops are weaklings, the city gates are wide open, their end has come. Nahum announces God's judgment on this city. So let's turn now to the third thing I want us to see and that is the effect of this judgment. 
Remember, Nahum receives this vision at a time when Assyria still exists in its might and its majesty. They are the superpower of the ancient Near East. And this message is shared with Judah. God's judgment upon this enemy is utterly certain. It is a sure thing. What would that mean for God's people? What would that mean for the nation of Judah? What impact would it have? What effect would it have on them? See, God's judgment upon Nineveh would, in fact, mean freedom for God's people. See, Judah had watched as the Assyrians had cruelly invaded Israel to the north and destroyed them, brought them into exile. Judah was aware of the violence of Assyria. They had likely experienced some of that. Judah was among the other nations economically exploited by Assyria. They lived in the shadow of this superpower, this violent, brutal nation. And even though Judah still at this time had some semblance of autonomy, they essentially existed as a vassal king under Assyria, lived with this constant threat of being swallowed up, of being crushed by the Ninevites. So in light of that reality, this message of the certainty of God's judgment upon this wicked nation meant for God's people, it meant freedom. That freedom was coming, that freedom from oppression, freedom from violence, freedom from exploitation, freedom from fear. God's judgment on Nineveh meant freedom for God's people. God was coming to rescue them. God had once come and rescued them as a people from cruel slavery in Egypt. Now God was declaring that he was coming again to deliver them once more, this time from the Assyrians. Though Nineveh looked formidable, Nineveh would not stand, would not last. They would be judged. Yahweh was going to set things right. And so this message of judgment upon Nineveh is at the same time a message of hope, of joy for God's people. It was an announcement of the coming freedom they would experience. Except except that Judah did not respond as we might have hoped as we might have expected. It it did not have the desired effect, the expected effect upon them as God's people. We're not told, Nahum doesn't speak to the immediate response of God's people to this vision of judgment upon Nineveh, but we do know that about 55 years after God's judgment fell upon Assyria, after Nineveh was wiped out and plundered by the Babylonians, we knew that about 55 years later, God's judgment would fall on another nation the nation of Judah. You see, Judah Judah would follow in the footsteps of the northern nation of Israel, who by God's design had faced judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. Judah would follow in the unfaithfulness of Israel. Judah would pursue idolatry. Resisting God would live unfaithfully, worshiping pagan gods. She would live as an enemy of Yahweh. Here's what we read in Jeremiah speaking about Judah just before she went into exile. Has a nation ever changed its gods? But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Jeremiah writes, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. 
God's announcement of judgment on Nineveh, God's proclamation to his people that he was coming, that he would get rid of the enemy, that he was going to set things right, should have moved God's people to worship him, to anticipate that freedom, the glorious freedom of life uh, in his presence, in relationship with him, and yet they didn't. They too turned their backs on him. In in their sinful rebellion, they worshiped non-gods. They lived as enemies of God. And so because of their persistent idolatry, Yahweh would be against them too. Just as he had been against Nineveh, just as he had been against Israel, just as he'd been against Egypt. And sure enough, in 586, God raised up Babylon as an instrument in his hand to judge Judah. Babylon would invade and carry them off into exile, leaving them in despair. Here's how the psalmist, Psalm 137, recounts the despair that God's people experienced after they were carried into exile. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Judah lived as enemies of Yahweh. And here we see, we recognize that Nineveh is in fact not the only enemy, not the greatest enemy that we face. Satan, God's adversary, is bent on leading us astray, and we have followed his ways. We have sinned. We have lived in rebellion against God in our arrogant determination to live autonomously. We have lived in rebellion against God unfaithfully, rejecting him, rejecting his ways. And so the question for Judah, for God's people, is what... What hope did they have? Was there any hope? I mean, even if they, as God's chosen people, they failed to live faithfully, they proved to be His enemies, what what hope is there? That leads us to the fourth thing that I want us to focus on, and that is the fulfillment of judgment. I want to ask an important question. How can the message of Nahum, a message about the coming of judgment upon sin, the coming of judgment upon sinners, how can this be anything but a sobering, frightening message? How how can this be about freedom? In Isaiah 53, Isaiah, the earlier chapters speak, God speaks of a coming king, a coming king who would come and set things right and Around chapter 42, the book shifts, and instead of speaking of a king, begins to speak of a servant. And when we get to Isaiah 52 and 53, we, we discover that that servant will be a servant who suffers, a suffering servant. And then Isaiah speaks these words about that one who will come. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. Here is the hope. Here's the hope of the Scriptures. Here's the hope of Christianity. That God in Christ came. He came as king, but he came as a, as a servant king, a servant king who would suffer that out of love for rebellious human beings, for those who have gone their own way, those who have thumbed their noses to him, he came, and he came to take our place. He came to suffer the judgment that we deserve because God in his holiness must set things right. Sin incurs a, a debt. There is a price, and God in His love came in the person of His Son, Jesus, to bear that punishment, to bear the judgment that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus was judged. On the cross, Jesus became the bearer of judgment. He was judged for all that we deserved in our place, so that through faith in Him, for all who put their faith in Jesus... There is forgiveness. There is restoration. Our sins are washed away. As far as the east is from the west, not only that, not only are we forgiven, but we are clothed with His perfection, with His righteousness. So the Father looks at you and me in Christ and He sees only the perfect, righteous obedience of Jesus. He makes us utterly beautiful, but there is more. Not only is that freedom from judgment that we can experience through faith in Him because of what Jesus has done, one day we will experience complete freedom when, when Christ returns and He finally does set all things finally and fully right. See, we, we are like the people that Nahum spoke to, that he proclaimed this message to. God is coming to judge the enemy. See, Nineveh still stood for probably another three decades. This, this judgment that was coming, this setting of all things right, remained in the future. And so we experienced the same thing in Christ. In Christ, we are already forgiven. In Christ, we are already made holy. But in Christ, one day, God, one day Christ will return and we will be fully restored. We will experience freedom in all its fullness. Christ will return and evil and wickedness will be finally fully judged. All that opposes His kingdom, all that stands against love and goodness and grace will be judged. He will set all things right. Our true ultimate enemy, Satan, will be finally vanquished. So although already now... We are free. We, we, we are free from the penalty of sin. And, and though already now, we, we can experience a growing freedom from the power of sin in our lives. One day, one day Christ will come and He will judge all that is evil and wicked. He will set all things right and we will know freedom from the very presence of sin. 
On that day, we will experience freedom in all its fullness, freedom from every enemy, freedom from oppression, freedom from pain, freedom from our brokenness, from our woundedness, freedom from every fear, freedom from tears, from sadness, from death. We will experience freedom in all its fullness on that day when Christ comes and brings things to their appointed end. God's judgment will prove to be the ultimate setting of all things right. When I began this morning, I asked you to imagine freedom. I want to end in the same way. I I want you to imagine the freedom. I want you to picture what is promised to us by Christ, what is promised to us in Christ. I want you to imagine the day, the coming day, when Christ the King, the suffering servant, returns. I want you to imagine the day when evil and wickedness and pain is finally fully dealt with in the world and in our own lives. I want you to imagine the day when God's kingdom breaks into this world in all its fullness. I want you to imagine the day when all things, all things, All things are set right when we will know freedom in all its fullness, the glorious freedom achieved for us by Christ on the cross. I want us to imagine that and to allow our hearts to be moved to worship Christ, our King who died for us. We're going to celebrate.